And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There may be no bigger issue in Washington today than the future of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And uh, we had a forum the other day at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago in which two major players on the issue, Nancy Ann DeParle, who was the architect of the Affordable Care Act for the Obama administration, and Mike Levitt, the former governor of Utah, who was Secretary of Health and Human Services under George W. Bush, came together to talk about the future of health care under the Trump administration and beyond. We're going to devote this week to two podcasts, the first with Nancy Ann DeParle, the second with Governor Levitt, to get two different perspectives on this big issue. I met Nancy Ann DeParle at the White House uh, shortly after I came to Washington with Barack Obama, and she was recruited to help guide the process of the Affordable Care Act uh, through Congress. And uh, and what I learned about her was that she was extraordinarily smart and very passionate about the issue of health care. Without her leadership, there would have been no Affordable Care Act. So as the Affordable Care Act is now being debated again in Washington, it was good to sit down with her uh, the other day at the Institute of Politics in Chicago. Nancy Ann DePaul, my old colleague and friend, it's it's good to see you. I you I always say to people uh, uh, when they ask me why I am so high on America, I always say, well, because they're great American stories, and you're one of the great American stories I know. And uh, so I want you to talk a little bit about your upbringing in Rockwood, Tennessee. I always used to call it Rocky Point. I know that's wrong. Rockwood, Tennessee. Great metropolis in. Uh, I think you were trying to make it into Rocky Top. I did. I did go to the University of Tennessee, and that's our one of our songs. Um, yeah, well, I grew up in a town of four thousand in uh, East Tennessee, um, really small place. Um, moved back there with my mom, a single mom who raised uh, three kids on her own, um, and she. Yeah, was you from tell me, there. You, your dad was an immigrant. My dad was an immigrant. Um, Almost literally came over on, you know, one of the last boats from Shanghai uh, in 1949. And I know all this. After the revolution. Right. I know all this kind of in in, only in the last few years, David, because I really didn't know my dad. Um, My mom and dad met. uh, He came over to uh, study, uh, was at Stanford briefly, and then couldn't afford it, and somehow made his way to um, Knoxville, Tennessee, my mom was working as a nurse there. Um, she was an Army nurse in World War II. Um, she and her two brothers both served in, in the military. Uh, uh, the two, Her two brothers were in the Navy, and she was in the Army. She was working as a nurse, and she met my father there. And then they moved from And there. they were all Tennesseans? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. They were from this town, Rockwood, where I grew up. So my mom moved with my dad to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where he was— uh, at Case Western for a while, um, doing engineering. He'd studied engineering in, in Shanghai. And uh, that's where I was born, and my older brother was born. And then they moved to Auburn, Alabama, where my younger brother was born. And um, my father, I think, struggled to support um, his family. He was a student, and my mom moved back to Rockwood, where her mother was. And so I was raised there by her. 
Um, and, with, and you never really, and you never heard from your dad again. Well, we saw him a few times. They got divorced um, not long after that, and we saw him a few times, but really didn't reconnect with him until I had my uh, my second son. Um, and my my husband, who is a reporter for the New York Times, found my father. So we uh, reconnected then. Um, and what it's was not that a, like? It's not a big happy ending. I mean, it was it was uh, an awkward connection after all those years. Uh, but my older son, Nikki, did did form a bit of a relationship with him, and he died a few years ago. Did you ever talk about this with the president? Because he has, you know, his story is famous uh, by now. But the whole notion of being separated from your father and 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 reuniting later. He actually didn't. I mean, he did when he was 10 and then reunited by piecing together his father's life after his father died. Right. And I I wish I had done more, really. My husband um, interviewed uh, my father to get a little more of, of his history. Uh, so I, d- I didn't know much about him at all. And no, Which the point are your I'm- husband's Jason DeParle, the, the great New York Times reporter and author and uh, – a, a, a major figure in, in, in journalism. And a major figure in my life. Yes, that goes without saying. Yeah, so he interviewed him and... Well, yes, he interviewed him to get more of the background on him because I really didn't know that much, not having grown up with him and not having seen him in all those years. But your mom sounds like a heroic figure in this story. My mom was incredible. Um, my mom never spent uh, a day away from us. Um, she raised three kids on her own, um, my grandmother was also a big figure in my life, and uh, my mom was a state government uh, employee, worked as a, as a clerk typist for the uh, state of Tennessee Department of Conservation. And um, obviously you became prominent um, because of your work in, in the area of health care in, in many different iterations, ultimately as the... Uh, uh, really one of the uh, the architects of the Affordable uh, Care Act. But um, I never really discussed this with you. Y- you had an er- early and very searing experience with health care that I didn't know about until I started getting ready for this uh, conversation because of your mom's illness. How much, first of all, talk a little bit about that and then uh, tell me whether that is something that helped motivate you to go into this area? Well, it definitely is. Yes. So my mom, um, uh, as I said, worked very hard and raised three children. And when I was a junior in high school, um, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and actually had some other types of cancer as well, but definitely lung cancer. And she had been a smoker. Um, So I spent my uh, last couple of years of high school uh, helping her get back and forth from treatments. And what I remember about it, uh, David, among other things, was uh, she was so frightened and worried about losing her health insurance. Uh, she had health insurance through uh, her state job. And also um, they told me that she wouldn't make it to my high school graduation, but she did. She was there. Uh, and then when I came home, uh, I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, an hour or so away, a big state university. When I came home, for Christmas break that year, she died. Um, and you so, were there. Yes, I was there when she died. So, you know, that was that was it. Uh, but 
one of the saddest things to me was that uh, she didn't die directly from lung cancer. She probably would have. Uh, this was in 1974. She probably would have. But what she died of was pneumonia, which she got because she was trying to go to work because she didn't want to miss too much insurance. work and lose her insurance. Yeah. You, so, um, that's a, so your dad was gone and your mom died when you were, uh, I just set, turned 18. Yeah. Was that the sort of hard line of demarcation in your life between being a kid and being a adult? Yes. I mean, I, I can remember getting back to school and sitting on my you know bed in the dorm and thinking, okay, this is it. And you, um, we shouldn't gloss over that your mom probably was awfully proud because you were like, you were a superstar student. Uh, and what motivated you that way? How did you, you were what, valedictorian, salutatorian, something like that in your class? Well, um, gosh, I just, I loved reading, I loved learning. And yes, my mom, my mom somehow never, um, always made me think I could achieve anything. And I had lots of help. And then, and you did achieve something that nobody else achieved before you at the University of Tennessee. You became the student body president. How, how, uh, the first woman, the first woman. Yes. Yeah. I should have, I should have, uh, I should have put it in context. Um, how big a deal was that back then? How, much attention did that draw to you? It got a fair amount of attention. I, I, um, you know, I've I had a lot of um, support in doing that. It wasn't uh, me putting myself out there. I, I had run successful for vice president. There had been a lot of women vice presidents. Why did you? Why were you interested in that? I just always loved politics, and I remember in high school I got involved in a, a political campaign. Tom Wiseman uh, ran for governor as a Democrat. And uh, I was I worked after school at the Live and Let Live drugstore in Rockwood as a soda jerk. And he came through town, and I met him. And I came home, and I said to my mom, "I'm going to be a Wiseman gal at the <laughs> at the rally on Saturday." And she's like, "No, no, no, you're not," because back in those days, uh, David, you know, a career civil servant, which is what my mom was, could still be worried about losing his or her job if you got politically involved with the other party. So she was worried that I would somehow uh, get her in trouble. But I've always been interested in politics and problem solving. And um, so when I got to University of Tennessee, you know, it was a huge 35,000 uh, undergraduate student body. And yeah. I just uh, immediately became involved in in uh, student government. And uh, we used to go over and lobby the state legislature for funding for the university and you know, that's just what I enjoyed. And you, you got a Rhodes Scholarship, and you went uh, ultimately went to uh, to Harvard Law School. Um, was it your notion that you were going to get back into government and politics at some point? I thought I might. I mean, you mentioned a Rhodes Scholarship, but but one of the others I'm proud of is a is a Pell Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was really uh, helped a lot by uh, the people of this country through through Pell Grants, through my mother's veterans benefits, through the jobs I had in college. I was able to to um, uh, 
to succeed and to get an education. And I did go back to Tennessee, and I did think about maybe one day I would run for something. You know, you 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 mentioned that, and it's such a interesting thing because these programs uh, have helped a lot of people, and a lot of people in towns like Rockwood, uh, where uh, you know Donald Trump did very very well in the selection. There's a lot of hostility toward government, and it's kind of paradoxical because. You know, it's like the guy who you'll remember who famously held up the sign during the Affordable Care Act debate saying, keep the government's hands off of my Medicare, uh, without a trace of irony. Um, There is this feeling, you know, that it should be, that somehow you shouldn't have to depend on the government. I, I remember feeling ashamed a little bit in college to go over to the line to pick up my uh, Pell Grant assistance. You know, I I remember feeling ashamed working in the cafeteria. It turned out to be a great uh, a great place to hone my political skills. Yeah, and but a great investment for the country. I hope so. Yeah, for for those. But you're saying a great investment in your political skills to work in the cafeteria. Right. I I felt so ashamed of- to be standing in there wearing the hairnet, but I met a lot of people that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Future politicians take note. Uh, This is one path to leadership. So um, you came back to Tennessee and at the age of 31, you, you took over the State Department of Human Services. How did that come about? Because that's a a awfully young to be uh, thrust into that position. It was actually 30. Okay, sorry. In fact, they timed the announcement. You're reminding me something funny. They timed the announcement so I would be 30 because the governor said he just didn't think it looked right to be 29 and taking over um, the largest <laughs> department in state government. Well, that led, you know, that came, there's a fairly direct line from that, uh, from my college experience. So as I mentioned, um, in student government, we lobbied the state legislature to get more funding for the university. And uh, the governor then, uh, Ned McWhorter, chose me. Ned McWhorter was Speaker of the House, and we would go over to lobby him. And um, so that's how I got to know him. So um, when he was running for governor, the story is I wasn't there, but the story is that Bob Squires, who yeah, was his media consultant, media consultant, and met with him and said, "Governor, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is a lot of people know who you are. You've been Speaker for however 18 years." The bad news is that you don't do very well among yuppies, a term maybe people wouldn't know these days, (laughs) but you'll remember it. And he said, well, what are yuppies? And supposedly Squire explained it to him. He goes, well, I know one of those yuppies. So at that (laughs) point, I I had just started my legal career. I was was, um, working as a lawyer handling a litigation matter in Omaha, Nebraska, spending most of my time out there. And he called me up and asked if I would help with this campaign. So I did. And then that's what led to... Ned McWhorter was like your classic uh, kind of Southern politician, big, garrulous uh, guy. What did you learn from him? Well, big and big-hearted. So what I learned from him was, um, uh, you know, he he was a man who'd been very successful financially, but who never forgot where he came from and who... um, really listen to the people of Tennessee. And that's what led to his uh, very early reform of the health care system. People talk about the Massachusetts reform as being what led to the Affordable Care Act, but there's a very real sense in what, in that, uh, in that what Tennessee did 
back in the um, early 90s also led there because what he did was he reformed uh, Medicaid to um, use the dollars more efficiently and cover more people and add people to the rolls that way. Now, you were you, I know you were there in the late 80s. Um, when did you leave your position there? I left my position in 89 mm-hmm. and went back to practicing law briefly and then moved to Washington. So the, did, was health care under your portfolio when you were at uh, DHS there? Not directly. I had child welfare, um, rehabilitation services, foster care, child abuse. Uh, but I also had uh, the what used to be called the AFDC or welfare program. And that is categorically, at that point, was categorically linked to Medicaid. So when the governor put together a indigent health care task force to go around the state figuring out what to do, I was part of that. So that's where I first got involved in healthcare. What caused you to go to Washington? You know, um, I had been in Washington before, so I had been an intern and then a staff assistant for President Jimmy Carter, and I just always wanted to live there. And I got to that point where I was a partner in my law firm, and I thought, you know, if not now, when am I ever going to live in Washington? Uh, and so I moved up there, Never, and it was after the— um, the first Gulf War and President George H.W. Bush was very popular. And to me, Washington's a government town, a company town, and the the company's the government. So I had to come to grips with the fact that I wouldn't be working for the company. I'd be working in a private law firm. And I moved up there. um, Your preference would have been to go right into government. It would have. Yes, I always thought I would do that. Um, It would have been. Um, I'll never forget the night that I moved to Washington, Governor McWhorter had asked me to come have dinner with him. So we're sitting at the governor's residence, and um, he gets a telephone call, and his assistant brings the phone out, and it's um, uh, Governor Clinton. And I only hear McWhorter's side of it, but he says, Billy Bob, what are you up to? He used to call him (laughs) Billy Bob, and he's quiet, and then he looks over at me and goes, Billy Bob says he's going to run for president. This was in (laughs) September of, uh, of 91, which ended up being... What happened? Yeah, and you yeah. ended up working for Billy Bob. I did. Yeah. What, uh, how did that come about? Well, again, I think from Ned McWhorter. I think he – I well, first of all, it wasn't just President Clinton. It was also Vice President Gore. Right. So it was one of these you had a good Tennessee unique situations connection. where I knew both the president and the vice president. And uh, they asked me to come help them, and I did. As First, as, uh, as the health care person within the Office of Management and Budget. And what did you learn uh, in that job? Well, that job was one that President Clinton created to work on health care reform. He famously, as you know, tried to do health reform. And I wanted to be at OMB uh, because I had seen from my experience in Tennessee running the Department of Human Services that it's important to be close to where the money is, that you could have all the great programs and ideas for programs in the world, but you needed to have... um, access to getting the financing and getting getting it done. Were you there during the period when they were working on the health care yes, yes. plan? Why did it fail? Well, that and would be longer than a, a podcast, a but podcast. just in a nutshell. But, yeah. I mean, what are the fundamental principles that you derive from that? Because you would come back uh, a decade later right. with Barack Obama, a decade later, more than a decade later with Barack Obama and try and achieve uh, the same goal. Uh, so what, what did you learn from that experience? Well, one thing was 
uh, not to try to draft your own bill, that uh, you need to work with the Congress and help them get a bill done as opposed to drafting a bill. It took, you know— Because that was one of the criticisms of the Clinton plan was that it was drawn behind closed doors, no congressional involvement, a lot of resentment on the Hill about it. There was congressional involvement, and there was a lot of stakeholder involvement, but because of the way it was set up— it was a very convoluted process, and writing a bill took, it was, you know, September by the time they had a draft of the bill done and sent it up there. And by then, sort of, you know, it was a circular firing squad by then. Everyone was arrayed, all the interest groups were arrayed. And we spent, you know, weeks, if not months, with uh, various uh, disease groups and advocacy groups over the periodicity of different tests that they wanted to have covered in the bill and what the, you know, exactly what the benefits should look like. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of the people uh, on the congressional staff who we worked with uh, through President Obama's uh, health care reform effort were also there for that. And we all basically uh, said to each other, we're not doing that again. We're not going to uh, get into those um, internecine battles that end up you know, hurting this effort. It just took too long. You know, we were fighting the clock the whole time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Nancy Ann DeParle. When you talk about the Clinton health care fight of the early 90s, one of the interesting uh, elements of that was the Republicans did come up with an alternative plan. And that alternative plan uh, was very much built around uh, health care exchanges and some of the principles that were incorporated into the Obama plan or what would become known as Obamacare uh, years later. And some of the people who helped draft that Republican plan were still in the Senate. Uh, when you arrived there, though, less eager to embrace their own idea. Yes, and I, I have to say a lot of what happened during um 2009 and 2010, and the the president's uh, effort to enact health reform uh, was inspiring and uplifting. Uh, But there were a number of things that were were not and made me cynical, and that's one of the examples, is that people who – and by the way, there wasn't just one Republican plan back during the Clinton administration. There had to have been a dozen senators who had their own plans, uh, many of which were – you know, shared many common elements with what we uh, we tried to to work on together with them. And in fact, during the time between the failure of the Clinton health reform effort and when President Obama was elected, there'd been a multi-stakeholder um, bipartisan effort that had been uh, engaged in for years by lots of groups and stakeholders and individuals. And really the contours of uh, these private sector uh, plans and exchanges and tax credits and all that had individual mandate, all of that had been basically agreed upon uh, on a bipartisan basis. So um, I won't say that I thought it would be a waltz. I never thought it would be easy. There's a reason why these things don't happen after. Seven presidents had tried to do it and seven presidents had failed. Right. I mean, you're dealing with a $4 trillion industry. There's a lot of zero-sum games that end up uh, getting played in it. But I never thought it would be easy, but I didn't think that we would – I thought there would be Republican support. I really did. And you'll remember, David, um, I didn't start until March of 2009. But in February, 
uh, I think the second meeting that the president had, the second big meeting with Congress, his first was an economic meeting. The second one was to bring together um, members of Congress as well as leaders of interest groups and advocacy groups and citizens to have a, a health care meeting at the White House about, you know, what are the problems, what can we do to control costs, what can we do to get everyone covered. And it was a, a half-day effort. We had breakout groups where there were Republican leaders and Democratic leaders together, and it really seemed that there was agreement that we needed to do something, that we had – people forget. You know, I, sometimes I feel like this debate we're having now is in a vacuum, and people forget what we were facing back in 2009 with – you know, 40 million plus people uninsured, that number projected to grow every year. Healthcare people, inflation yeah, was it, out of control. Costs yeah. out of control. People forget all that. Everyone agreed it was a problem. There wasn't anyone there. There was no Republican who attended who said we shouldn't do anything. Yeah. You know, um, I've, sa- I've written about this. I think I've talked about it here. Um, but I was very nervous about moving forward. Um, and I was nervous about moving forward because uh, not because I not just because I knew the history, but also I, I knew the data on all of this. And the reality was that eighty five percent of Americans had health coverage. And no, even though the ultimate bill, the Affordable Care Act, included all kinds of reforms that affected everyone who had health care, uh, the elimination of lifetime caps, for example, hugely important if you get seriously ill. People like your mom. Exactly. Uh, you, uh, uh, there was this sense that this was a program for other people, not for them. And then the other thing was, you know, I remember being struck in these early meetings. I would say people are really concerned about the cost of health care. And the healthcare experts in there said, well, we're concerned about cost too. But their notion of what the concern was was different than my concern. My concern was about the cost to individual patients, and their concern was about the cost of the overall uh, system. And uh, we never, I, I always felt like we were talking two different languages, maybe because I was a political hack and they were experts on the system. But well, um, but Donald Trump, I must say, he got that, and he, he always talks about it in terms of bringing down costs to consumers. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an alluring concept. It is. The rate of cost growth has been brought down dramatically. And I remember some of those meetings you're describing where we were struggling to um, explain how it would benefit the average person and reduce their costs. In fact, um, it has. And they may not know it because one of the other big struggles was communicating all this. But uh, we, it seems almost quaint now, but we were um, struggling in earnest over whether to make claims about what would be accomplished. We had projections of what we thought would be accomplished for people with employer-sponsored coverage. We ended up not putting uh, out a document that said this, but we overachieved it. So you may remember this $2,500 number per family. Yes. So um, the last data I looked at, uh, the Council of Economic Advisors data says that that so far the average family with employer-sponsored coverage has saved $3,600. And so, this is $3,600 uh, below what they would have had to uh, spend without the Affordable Care Act, but doesn't mean that their costs haven't gone up at all. That's right. Their costs probably have gone up a little bit. You know, I remember a call I got from uh, uh, 
one of our uh, supporters in the Senate for this, who was fully supportive but said, you know that once this passes, you're going to own everything, everything in the healthcare system. So if anybody gets a premium increase or if anybody has a bad experience, um, it's all going to be attributed to the Affordable Care Act. It'll it'll be your and our health care system no, now. to Obamacare. Right. To Obamacare, yes. yes. And that's exactly, that, that did happen. That did happen. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, the Republicans were uh, uh, dogged in exploiting uh, that sentiment. The interesting thing is now the shoe may be on the other foot. And um, I should give you an opportunity. You know, the president talks about the fact that uh, this is a disaster and we have to save Americans from this disaster. We've heard this rhetoric a lot. Um, tell me uh, what you see uh, the Affordable Care Act as having accomplished and where you think there are, frankly, places that it needs to be improved. Well, it, they they have the other side has been dogged and well before the law passed, they have said, pronounced it a disaster, that jobs are going to be lost over and over and over again to the point where, um, you know, at some point, I think people quit listening and just kind of accepted it. But from where I sit, um, if you had told me uh, in 2009, I, when I went to the White House, I had I had two pieces of paper. One was uh, a quotation from President Johnson. Uh, there is but one way for a president to deal with the Congress, and that is continuously, incessantly, and without interruption. I taped that above my computer. <laughs> the other one was my list of the top ten problems with the health care system. And they, didn't, they included, yes, that uh, too many people lacked coverage, that coverage was unaffordable, but also things like um, that our public health system uh, was falling apart, that we needed to pay more attention to prevention, that people needed to have more individual responsibility. It was a, you know, it was a, a full list. And when I look through the list, uh, I don't see a single thing on it that we haven't made some pretty uh, important progress toward. Uh, the uninsurance rate is at the lowest level in history. And that's not just for uh, the lowest income people. It, it has helped them. Their, their rate of uninsurance has, been, has dramatically uh, declined. But it's also helped people in the upper income levels. Every, every income level has been helped. Because things like the pre-existing condition uh, exclusions that people had from their health care policies uh, didn't just affect uh, low-income people. In fact, they probably affected higher-income people more. Yeah, you know, just I should interject here that one of the things that was so wrenching for me when I was trying to give the president political advice on this is that, as you know, I have a child with a chronic condition, epilepsy. She started seizing when she was seven months old. I was a young newspaper reporter, and um, I think I was making $38,000 a year, which was not a bad salary for a young guy. Uh, but uh, her medications, which weren't covered by our insurance, were costing us like $1,000 a month out of pocket. And uh, we were in desperate shape. And they uh, and there was no way to get other insurance because she now had a pre-existing condition. So, you know, I didn't understand how the healthcare system worked and didn't work at that time. So I knew that there was a need to address this. Um, and uh, ultimately, when the president moved forward, um, you know, I was very moved when the law passed. I wept 
because I knew that people wouldn't, there'd be people who wouldn't have to go through what my family went through. And I've heard from a lot of them uh, as I walk the streets. I'm sure you experience this as well. I have and, it in my own family too. And uh, I, uh, uh, on uh, Twitter the other day, and I'm not ashamed to say I tweet from time to time, I uh, said, uh, I asked people, uh, uh, you know, if they had had positive experiences with the Affordable Care Act, and the stories that came back were absolutely moving. So, you know, I we I should meet young people who've started their own businesses. A lot of those kind of stories. They have the ability to do that now. And I've had um, a friend come up to me and ask me if her son should move back to should move to England because he has a seizure related disorder, is yeah. able to be covered here now, but worries if. If, uh, you know, the plans to repeal this are successful, that he won't be able to get coverage. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 a young man stopped me on the street wearing a baseball cap. He had no hair. He was in his mm-hmm. late 20s. He was able to get uh, insurance. Uh, hadn't been feeling well, but hadn't seen a doctor. Had uh, Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's mm-hmm. lymphoma. And, uh, you know, because they were able to catch it in time, he was going to recover. And he was... He was tearful in um, in talking about this. So there are real human stories uh, attached. There are other stories as well. You hear a lot of uh, uh, complaints from people who are in the individual market who were in these exchanges, and they've seen their uh, rates go up. That that we've heard a lot about that from the opponents of the Affordable Care Act. So where where has it fallen short, and where if you could fix it, how would you fix it? Because the Republicans are looking for ideas here. They may be listening. Well, uh, one thing I would do, people ask me sometimes, if you could change one thing, what would it be? And if it's only one thing, what I would change is I would have had Republican engagement. Mm -hmm. Because if we had that together, I think we could have crafted something even stronger. And also we would have come back, as, as had always been the case before with major legislation. You come back in a year or so and you do a technicals bill or a corrections bill and you go through and you fix the little things that didn't go exactly the way you thought. And we thought we'd be doing that. We thought we'd be working with the other side to do that. And they, they just weren't prepared to engage. Um, so it's a little bit bittersweet for me now to see some of them uh, some new members, but some who were there before, um, suddenly with bills to uh, to you know repeal and replace uh, Obamacare. Because where were they when we had when I when the president had you know countless meetings with them trying to get them to engage and help us with this? Yeah, in fact, uh, the the impl- the 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 vote on the bill was delayed many months uh, in the cause of trying to enlist. Republicans who were sympathetic right. in private but felt right. they were politically constricted from uh, from cooperating with the president on this and participating. Uh, and we took many of their ideas. There, there were, I think, the numbers, the 100, 167 yeah. um, Republican amendments to the Senate bill, which, was, which formed the sort of foundation of the Affordable Care Act. Um, I used to tease the president that, I won't name the names here, but certain senators had more of their ideas in the law than he did. Uh, we worked really hard to, because they were good ideas. So I'm, you know, these, are, these were things we thought made the law stronger, um, ideas to go after fraud, waste, and abuse, ideas to make prices more transparent. You know, they were good ideas, and we agreed with them. And 
But where? But but if you could wave a magic wand, besides getting more Republican participation, what are the? What, for example, uh, would you do about the situation in some of these, um, in some of these exchanges where now there may be only one uh, insurance company uh, willing to offer policies? Well, there's a few things you could do about it. Um, we didn't have support for a public plan. I'm still not sure that. Uh, An option that, that would the, be a, a, a basically a government-run option, right? But uh, there was – we had a number of discussions about was there a way to include that as a fallback option, and that's something the president's talked – President Obama has talked about recently, so that in markets where you didn't have enough competition uh, – because there are places like that. There were places like that before the Affordable Care Act, and there still are. But, but the things I would do is I'd quit talking about repeal. If you really believe in markets, if you believe in markets and private plans as a way of, of helping people to get – affordable coverage, uh, where they have skin in the game, and where uh, you're not uh, uh, increasing the deficit, and where you're bringing down the rate of health care cost growth. If you believe in those ideas, which I think are ideas that many, if not all, Republicans could embrace, let's quit talking about repeal, and let's talk about how we can strengthen these marketplaces. And the way to do that is to you know, fix some of the issues that the insurance companies have complained about. You could narrow some of the special enrollment periods and do those things and also do more outreach. We were very hamstrung by the fact that... To younger, healthier right, people. Right. Because the whole principle is that if you get everyone in, you can hold down costs and balance off the older, sicker uh, patients with younger, healthier patients. But if younger, healthier uh, people don't enroll... Uh, it creates more pressure on the insurance market. Right. And there was some evidence that some of the insurance plans may have underpriced the first year or so, and now there was a correction this year. Uh, but the way to do this would be to go in and offer more incentives for young people to sign up, do more marketing and outreach. We were very hamstrung on that. And, in fact, the new administration just cut back on the the last uh, few weeks of out- marketing and outreach to young people. If you really want to get everyone covered beautifully, as as our president says, that isn't what you would do. You the mandate was obviously always uh, controversial, uh, and um, that's a, a big target here. The the, the pre existing condition uh, inclusion and some of these other elements are all embraced now. And I point out to people the goalposts have been moved in a way that they're not going to be moved. Uh, back again, and that's from my standpoint a positive thing. Um, but uh, the mandate was something that was not as popular because people don't like to pay fines, and it was a compulsory or meant to be a somewhat compulsory mm-hmm. tool. Um, but can this work without it? Could you substitute auto enrollment, for example, where everybody gets enrolled and then you opt out of the system? Well, you know, I'll submit to being drawn and quartered if there's a way to do all of this to get tr- true protection for people against pre-existing condition exclusions and and uh, to truly have that kind of a marketplace without requiring everyone to get in through a mandate. Um, all the economists and actuaries who've looked at it say that it really doesn't work. Um, could you make it work? Perhaps, David, with massive subsidies, massive much larger tax credits and subsidies than we currently have. Um, perhaps you could make auto enrollment work. 
It wouldn't be what our economist friends call target efficient. Um, you'd be spending a lot more government dollars. But, you know, this is a conversation we could have had um, back in 2009 if, if anyone had been willing to engage. Interestingly, I, I could argue that auto enrollment really isn't um, – I don't quite see how it's less objectionable to someone who doesn't want the government making them have something or do something. Yeah, I think there are behavioral economists who would suggest it's somehow uh, less odious to people to be uh, auto-enrolled and then have to withdraw than to be taxed. And uh, if told they, you have if to they do something exactly. Yeah. yeah, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with Nancy Ann DeParle. The answer you hear from some on Capitol Hill. Uh, and you know probably Congressman Price very well, uh, who's now uh, uh, about to be or is the health uh, HHS secretary and will have a great deal to say about this, are, are things like high-risk pools for people with uh, pre-existing conditions so they can have uh, coverage and health savings accounts so people can um, uh, accumulate money tax-free and then use that on health care expenses. Why aren't these valid alternatives in your view? Well, both of those mechanisms are things that have existed for years. We've had high-risk pools in the states. Um, They didn't work very well. They didn't really serve to provide people the kind of coverage they needed. Um, And there's no, there was no guarantee of funding. Um, You'd have to spend a lot more money than they've currently been willing to spend to really make those work. On the the, the other idea, the health savings accounts, you know, those are out there. They, they've had them offered, um, you know, I have one through my work. They can work all right for people who are relatively high income. They don't seem to work very well for people who are lower income. They, people well, it's hard to accumulate to money for one thing. Right. And they tend to, therefore, avoid getting the health care they need and the preventive care. Um, so they don't really achieve the same goals. You... Uh we we skipped over a decade of your uh, life. After you left OMB, you went over and ran the Medicare and Medicaid uh, programs uh, during the Clinton administration, and then you spent some time in the private sector as well. Um, what about this notion of Medicare for all, that uh, we should just simply expand uh, the Medicare program, which seems to be popular, uh, and uh, just include everyone in it, or a large segment of the popula- a larger segment of the population in it, moving the age eligibility down by a decade or fifteen years. Well, I love the Medicare program, and it was a real honor to to run it. I I mentioned my grandmother earlier, and I have a vivid recollection of sitting at her kitchen table with her when I was about ten years old, and she was she had a little shoebox with her. Um, medical bills in there, and uh, we were talking about the passage of Medicare and yeah. whether or not, you know, what she thought of President Johnson and whether or not it would help her, um, which it did. She lived to be 98, and if you get to be a senior citizen, you know, if you get to be 65 in this country, um, the evidence is pretty strong that you're going to have a good life ahead because of Medicare, so it's a great program. Um, Medicare for all could work. That is a single-payer system like many other countries have. It would be a 
funded by a payroll tax. It would just be extended from what we have. Um, it's a single-payer system that sounds less objectionable than, a, than saying we're going to a single-payer <laughs> system does. because everybody knows Medicare. Well, I'm a little cynical, though, David. I, you know, We tried, we, when I say we, President Obama, uh, our team, tried to do uh, to solve these problems of, of cost being unaffordable and reforming the health care delivery system to make it safer, which, by the way, is another real accomplishment of the Affordable Care Act. Your, your care in the hospital is safer now and better than it was before. So we tried to do all these things. In terms things. of reduced infections, right. return, uh, return. Readmissions. Readmissions, readmissions yeah. are fewer. We tried to do all of this through building on what we have right now, building on the, the private sector system, the employer-based system that we have now. Um, what you're describing, it might be more palatable. You're the, you're yeah, the expert look, I on don't, this. I, I honestly don't think it's politically palatable. I think, you know, it may be uh, sensible from a policy standpoint, uh, but uh, not politically palatable because it would be depicted as, um, as single payer. And Americans, uh, you know, they associate this healthcare system with choice, choice of doctor, choice of uh, policies, and so on. Right, which seniors have. The other interesting thing about it is that um, there have been proposals in the past. We had one in the Clinton administration to, to and I believe um, Secretary Clinton had one in her campaign to expand Medicare to cover people age fifty-five. Some of the senior advocacy groups have objected to that. Now, there's a because way— Because they're worried about the solvency of the system? Solvency. What and about the it, solvency of the system? You know, the president, President Trump, has said he's not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. And then you have a lot of folks, Republican and Democrat, who say the system needs uh, some uh, fiscal retrenchment and some policy changes because we're growing old as a country— and there's a lot more pressure on on the Medicare system. As someone who ran the system, what's your sense of that? Well, uh, I think Medicare is in good shape, and I think we strengthened it through the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, every 10 years or so— What if the um, Affordable Care Act is repealed? Well, then seniors will lose their coverage for prescription drugs in their donut hole, so they'll have a lot of— uh, drugs they have to pay for that they don't have to pay for now. A lot of the reforms in Medicare would go away, and Medicare's solvency would be much worse. So presumably, if they do try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they won't uh, change those pieces of the Medicare that have worked. This is the problem. This is the fun of health care, David. This is <laughs> right? the problem. It is so complex, and if you pull one brick out, right. the whole wall can fall in because there's not one person in that Republican caucus who uh, wants to be responsible for uh, driving the Medicare program into insolvency, for telling their older constituents that they're going to have to pay more for their prescription drugs. And in fact, the president's telling them otherwise. Right. And I think his instincts are the, are the smarter ones on this. I, I'm remembering uh, in all the meetings that President Obama, and people, people forget, we had, um, you know, Hundreds of hearings on Capitol Hill for two years before the before uh, the Affordable Care Act was enacted, starting before President Obama was elected, uh, and then we had many many meetings in the White House about this internally and with senators and congressmen. And the president used to um, 
sit there and think about it, and he would move his hands as though he was solving a Rubik's Cube because he would say, well, what about this? Could you, I, I don't know how many different simulations we did for him of different premium and copay and various other uh, components of the law. And um, he was right. Every time you moved one of the cubes, the others got sort of out of whack. And he's the one guy I know who could probably solve a Rubik's Cube. So that, Ano- was, that uh, was humbling. Another, um, another proposal that you hear a lot uh, discussed by Republicans on the Hill is allowing insurance companies to sell health insurance across state lines, uh, which I think is done in a few states right now. But uh, what would the impact of that be? The, the theory being there'd be more competition in the states as a result of that. Well, maybe there would, maybe there wouldn't, but it's in the Affordable Care Act. If anyone wants to do it, all they have to do is the states have to agree. So if Illinois and Iowa want to do it, the two governors and legislatures have to agree that they want to do it, um, then they can, and presumably if insurance the ones, companies want to do it, they can. And presumably the state that allows it is not going to want that company to come in under lower standards right. than they set. So that's really what the problem that's is. That's exactly what the problem is. Is that, And the concern among the insurance commissioners, and again, the insurance commissioners are uh, Republicans and Democrats, and they, they all agree that that kind of a system leads to a race to the bottom and leads to the kind of abuses and, and rules that we had before where, um, you know, I, I'm always reminded of the human stories, the people that we met who, um, you know, would thought they had coverage for something, and then they had a recurrence of their breast cancer, and in the fine print, it's not covered anymore. You know, you have to have, this is a market that requires some regulation. It just does. You um, you talked before about the impact of, of a repeal on Medicare if there wasn't an adequate replacement. There is this awkward deal where they can't really do any sort of repealing um, uh, and get the votes to do it. Uh, but through budget reconciliation, which requires just, I don't want to get into the weeds, but just a majority of votes to, to replace it. They'll, they'll Under the rules of the Senate, they'd need 60 votes, including Democrats. Uh, so what would happen if they did repeal without a replacement right away? What would the impact on the health care system be and on consumers, not just who are in the Affordable Care Act and covered by it, but uh, everybody else? Well, I think you're already beginning to see what would happen. I think uh, the markets uh, are already feeling very rickety. People are worried, insurers are worried about whether it will still be there. And if you're the insurance company, uh, you don't want to be the last one standing, you know, waiting to cover people when, uh, you know, next June when you find out that they're repealing it and they don't have a replacement. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to, you're not going to, you're not only not going to make money, you're going to lose a lot of money. So, uh, I think they're they're very jumpy about uh, that, and consumers are jumpy about it. Um, you talk to people in, who are working in the states or in the, uh, the the call centers; they're getting calls from people saying, "Should I sign up? Is it going to go away?" Um, that's not good, especially if young people are concerned. Uh, and when you have an executive order coming out, the very first one that the president signed, saying uh, basically, uh, "We won't enforce the requirement that people get covered." Uh, we won't necessarily enforce any of this. Again, that sends a message that uh, I think is is very concerning and should be to insurance plans and to everybody. Um, so I think that's what would happen. But um, one thing that's mystified me is this, I think there's a bit of a notion 
that, oh, 50 votes, that's, that's so much easier than 60. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's, it's not that easy to get to 50 votes on something this important. And one thing that has been um, somewhat affirming to me to see and is that, the, that now that we're uh, beyond the, the campaign bumper stickers and we're actually talking about real people and their lives and what could happen to them, um, you're seeing um, members of the majority party engage and start to see how hard this will be. And I don't think it's uh, I don't think that repeal is a foregone conclusion at all. One of the ways uh, insurance was extended was through Medicaid and expanding mm-hmm. uh, Medicaid for states that were willing to uh, uh, to participate in that uh, program. Um, you re- helped run the Medicaid program as well. Now you hear talk about. Uh, Congress uh, block granting Medicaid. In other words, instead of requirements as to how the money be spent, just handing the states uh, a lump sum. I think the presumption is that lump sum would be smaller than what they get now on the theory that they can be more efficient without federal requirements. Uh, What's your sense of that? Because you've been, even though you didn't handle the health care program, you did have some uh, familiarity with Medicaid when you were on the state side what would that what would I did that and I ran it at the federal level well you know it's it's all in the numbers so is this about saving money I think it is if it's about saving money then the way a block grant works is by cutting the amount in the block grant and I think some governors believe that oh I can manage it more efficiently so if they take away many of the requirements I'll be able to manage the smaller amount of money and I'll be fine but Medicaid uh, is is partly there to serve as a bulwark against, uh, you know, an economic downturn when suddenly more people are eligible because they've lost their jobs or because there was a hurricane in your state or whatever it is. Um, and I think they will find that this is a, a bit of a Trojan horse if they agree to some number that looks good, you know. Uh, it might look good for the first couple of years, and then after that, I think they'll wish they had the old Medicaid. And there's a lot they can do. The Affordable Care Act has a has a provision that allows governors uh, and state legislatures to design their own uh, system. In, in well, in essence. fact, Mike Pence took advantage right, of that did. in Indiana and insured 400,000 right. more people in and a Governor program Kasich that he did it in Ohio. calls a disaster now. <laughs> right. Well, and let's be honest, the very first one of these, uh, Massachusetts, which was something that we um, looked at closely, and even there, where it's extremely popular, the, the the Massachusetts connector, the most unpopular piece of it is still the individual mandate requirement. Because even though people really like it, they just don't like having to buy health insurance. But with that program, that was funded by a, a waiver from the federal government. The thing that worries me about the Medicaid block granting, as a parent of an adult child with special needs who uh, is relying on Medicaid, uh, that uh, it seems, history suggests that the most vulnerable among us are usually the ones who are the first ones who lose out when these decisions are made about how to prioritize dollars. So um, it's a a big concern. Well, as someone who was on the other side of uh, the lobbyist, I would say you should be concerned. Last question on all of this, and then I want to ask you a personal question about how you're kind of processing this this process um, is about the cost of prescription drugs. The president's made a very big issue of this, and he 
has uh, suggested that he's going to compel the uh, pharmaceutical companies to do what time immemorial we've debated they should do, which is to uh, is to negotiate with Medicare and Medicaid over pharmaceuticals and the price of pharmaceuticals to bring down their costs. And he seems to be intimating to them that in exchange he and and for bringing their plants back here, he will give them tax. Uh, a more favorable tax climate and less regulation is that a doable is there a is there a bargain in there that you think is um, in the public interest uh, well the public interest is in having um, a- affordable prescription drugs and 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 still also having the kinds of advances that we have in this country which which I want as a as a mother and potential patient someday. Um, and that everyone wants. So it's a balance. It's a balance. Um, I would say the industry has always fought this idea of negotiating uh, with the government for the Medicare prices. Uh, I'd be really Because that surprised. would set the market for them. It's right. such a big market, right. Medicare, that that would reduce costs for everyone. Right. And Medicaid's even bigger, and they're already sort of subject to, to the lowest price for the Medicaid program. Um, I think I'd be shocked if they will uh, take that bargain, but I guess we'll see. So um, I know I spent so many hours with you back in the day when you were fighting valiantly to pass this program, which died a thousand deaths before it was passed. And I know the sense of accomplishment that you felt, uh, that everyone felt who worked on it uh, at the time. How do you react to all of this rhetoric about saving the Amer- Americans from this disaster and uh, the sort of pejorative uh, implications attached to these critiques of the Affordable Care Act? And how worried are you about uh, about the major elements surviving? Well, you know, first, um, yes, I, I have a feeling of... of um accomplishment about it. But uh, as I said in the beginning of this, I've been so fortunate and so blessed, and and this country's done so much for me. And this law, which really has helped a lot of people, and I think will continue to help a lot of people, and helped put our country in a stronger place economically, um, it passed for one reason, and that's because President Obama had the courage and the grit to, um, you know, stick to it and to keep pushing when everyone else said it's a lost cause. And I give um, uh, Leader Reid and and Speaker Pelosi and many others credit as well. And I think about the courage of members, and we could talk about some of their names. Yeah, Tom Periello and Earl Pomeroy and others who knew they would probably lose because of the this was the height of the Tea Party agitation against them over this one vote, and they still thought it was the right thing to do. So so what are you um, thinking about now? Now I think that uh, we have changed the conversation, that the conversation now is about, um, yes, we have to do something, and yes, uh, everyone should be covered, beautifully covered. Um, it's about, I'd like to do it at a lower cost. Um, it's about we definitely will keep the uh, ban against pre-existing condition exclusions. So all of those things that seem to be in contention before, I think, are not. 
And we'll see how easy is it to do. This is like the the Biles, you know, some Simone Biles is uh, famous uh, uh, contortions in gymnastics. Can they really do all of those things better than the Affordable Care Act? And if they can, David, I'm with the president, President Obama, who said, if they can do all of this, I'll support it. Um, I happen to think I what should, we did I was pretty, say pretty good. I've, I've been watching uh, these guys on TV. None of them look as agile as Simone Biles, <laughs> but that's just well, for the record. You know, I... I uh, I feel some empathy. This isn't easy. There's, there's a reason why these yeah. things didn't happen for almost a hundred years. But you know, it's uh, I, I Senator Patty, Mur- Patty Murray said something the other day that I it's what we ought to be doing is we should quit talking about repeal and we should talk about how do we repair this. Um, and that's a conversation that many people would be happy to have. It's sort of hard to repair the roof when. They're trying to burn well, it's the It's a marketing down. problem, too, because yeah. uh, they've committed themselves to repealing it. And so repair sounds like a retreat. And the question is whether uh, we can get past that and right. see a, a real collaborative effort to try and fix those things that need fixing uh, and yet keep the spirit of the Affordable Care Act, which is to make affordable care uh, not just accessible but a reality. Uh, for the largest number of Americans. And if we do, uh, a lot of it will have to, will be, despite all of your tributes, and I agree with them to the president and all the others who worked on it, but you're a, you're a hero of the story, and uh, I deeply appreciate you and uh, seeing you here at the Institute and, and spending time with you today. Thank you. Thanks for always being such a generous friend. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.